Well, hey, we are in our last week of a series called For Tyler. And the whole purpose of this series has been to try to ask the question, what are you for? Because we live in a world that is adamantly against things. And they're pretty um, voiced, um, they're not afraid to voice their opinion and let you know what it is that they're against. And so many times, what we're for gets lost because our focus is on what we're against. And when we focus on what we're against, our main focus becomes on who is on the outside that does not belong on the inside. But when we focus on what it is that we are for, we focus on a unifying question that moves us together in the same direction. Because what you are against can blind you to what you are for. And if we can together as a church, and, and as churches, focus on what it is that we're for, then the kingdom of God will grow. See, our desire is not to be the greatest church in Tyler, Texas. Our desire is to be the greatest church for Tyler, Texas. That, that we would make an impact, not just in this city, but in this world, because a unified body, we believe, has the power to change the world. And my fear in this series has been that you would say, well, that's a lot of really good application. But what I wanted to do in this message was kind of go back to the foundations of this, to, just to let you know that this is not application and how we live things. This is a lived theology. And it is a theology from the very beginning. In the beginning, when God creates the world, I think this is what he has in mind. And so I want to go back and just begin with this letter to the exiles. As you know, if you've been here, if you haven't, you can go to shilohroad.com or to iTunes, and you can catch the first two in this series. And I would really encourage you to do that. But we've been asking a question from this passage in Jeremiah chapter 29. It says, but seek, can you put it up on the screen because I don't have that in my notes, sorry. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city, which I have carried you into exile. Pray to it for the Lord, or pray to the Lord for it, excuse me, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And what I want to do today is ask the question, what does it look like? What does it mean to seek the peace and prosperity of the city? What, what does that mean and what does it look like to actually seek peace and prosperity in the city? And I want to read um, kind of a little more literal translation of this passage um, with a Hebrew word in there that we'll talk about in just a minute. But Jeremiah 29 verse 7, it says, But seek the shalom. Of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for if it or for in its shalom, you will find shalom. So the word shalom in Hebrew looks something like oops, not like that, sorry. Looks something like that. And it means Peace, prosperity, welfare, 
or completeness. Peace, prosperity, welfare, and completeness. It's this idea that shalom means things are the way that they were supposed to be. Things are as, and you get a sense in our world today that things are not the way they are supposed to be, right? You turn on the news, you walk outside, you see conflict, you see all that's happening in our world, and you have this really good sense that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And so he says to seek the shalom, the peace, the prosperity, the welfare, the completeness of the city which I have carried you into exile. But what does it mean to seek the shalom of the city? What does it mean to be for that city? Well, in the beginning, it says that God created the heavens and the earth. And so in the beginning, there is the heavens and there is the earth. And it seems that there are these two realms that come together. And in the midst of this, he places a man and a woman in a garden. And he says, you're going to experience, and one of the things, the word's not actually used, but I think what you see in Genesis 1 and 2 is shalom. Things are as they should be. Things are right with God. Things are right with man. Things are right with self, and things are right with creation. Things are as they should be, and because they're as they should be, they experience the goodness of God, which is really a blessing. That they would experience the goodness of God and be blessed by it. But he doesn't just put man and woman in a garden and leave them. He gives them a purpose. And this, this purpose has several different aspects. The first is we've talked about this entire year um, throughout these series is the Imago Dei, the image of God. He, he gives them the purpose, the vocation of carrying God's image into the world and representing him to the world. And this Imago Dei is one goes into the world, would fill the world, and God would be known in the world because his image bearers are in the world. That as they carry his image into the world, the rest of the world gets to see a picture of what God is like. He also says that I want you to flourish. I want you to flourish. He says that I want you to work the ground and take care of it. I want you to help creation to go somewhere. And God gives his good creation. And he says, I want you to make my good creation something that extends into the whole earth. And I want this garden that we have created to expand. right? Because in the garden, there are these rivers. And these rivers provide a boundary. They provide a boundary that says, inside here, everything is right. And then the question then becomes, that if there are boundaries, what is on the outside of those boundaries? And I think the answer is wilderness. Right? 
the garden has these rivers that define it, and within the borders there is God. There is a relationship with him. There is a relationship with one another, that everything is right, that creation is good, that creation is going somewhere. And God's glory, the hope, is that it would fill the earth through these image bearers that he sent here. So it would be to expand those borders. And so these image bearers have this purpose, and they are supposed to help this good creation to flourish and to go into all the world and for the borders to expand, but then also to dwell with God, to have the presence of God. And what the writer wants you to see is this garden, in a very profound way, is a temple. Because a temple is the place that God dwells. It's also the place where heaven and earth come together, where they meet. And when that happens, when God's dwelling is there and heaven and earth meet, we get a picture of God's glory. And so he gives them this garden, and he says, you're going to flourish, and you're going to live within it, and relationship is going to go, and you're going to carry God's presence into the world. That is your purpose from the beginning, to carry God's presence into the world. And then he sends, and we see him say there is a spirit that hovers over the waters in the beginning, but we actually get to see that spirit at work in the life in the garden, because that spirit is an advocate. That spirit is a helper. That spirit is a counselor. Think about the beginning. He says, in the beginning there is this tree. And he says you can eat from any tree. Think about this aspect as a helper, as a counselor. You can eat from any tree in the garden. However, there is one tree in the garden. And if you eat from that tree, you're going to experience death. You're going to experience decay. And that brings with it a curse. And the result of that curse is pain. If you eat from that tree in the garden, you're going to find yourself on the outside of the garden looking in. And you will experience pain because you are going to be in a wilderness. You're going to be in exile. You're going to be outside of God's purpose. You're going to be outside of the dwelling place of God. And man experiences in the garden that God is for him. Because this counselor that comes into the garden speaks and shares and helps man to fulfill the purpose that he gave him, to flourish and to expand the borders of the garden, take the glory of God, the presence of God into all the earth, and to dwell with him and to be one with him. And in that, they would find this shalom, this peace with God, with man, with self, and with creation, that all would be good. And as they experience God's goodness, blessing would come. But if they go their own route, death would follow. And the problem in the midst of the creation with everything as it should be, there is another spirit that seems to be at work. But this is an unholy 
spirit. And this unholy spirit is full of blame and accusation and deception and rivalry. And this spirit, it becomes very clear, is against this creation. Not wanting this creation to flourish. Not wanting the borders of this creation to expand. Not wanting them to experience life. And so many times you hear people argue over Genesis 1 and 2. Well, did the garden happen just like that? Did it happen just like this? And it was, man, the point of the garden is not whether or not it happened. The point of the garden is that the garden happens every single day of our life. That we find ourselves here in the dwelling place of God and we have a choice which voice and which spirit we will listen to, which spirit we will follow, which one will guide us. Will, will it be the voice of the advocate and the helper or the counselor, that Holy Spirit? Or will it be this unholy spirit who it's called in the New Testament the Satan, Hasatan? Satan is full of blame and accusation and deception and rivalry. And so into this creation, man finds himself on the outside of the garden looking in, find themselves as exiles. And then in the midst of this garden, there are these brothers that find themselves on the outside because of what their parents did. Don't tell me that what you do does not affect anyone else. Don't tell me that your choices don't affect your children and your children's children for generations to come because they find themselves on the outside looking in. And you see this spirit of blame and accusation because Cain is angry with Abel and he blames him because God is more pleased because of what he has done than he's pleased with him. And he makes it accusation. And there's rivalry. And I think deception. As they go for a walk out in the field. And he allows his anger to take over. And he kills his brother. And in that, a pattern develops. A pattern where it's easy to blame and accuse and deceive. And it becomes something that defines the world. It's almost as if God gives this good creation and then man recreates God's good creation. And he uses it for a different purpose. Because the creation that was there to bless and to give life becomes something that's all about them. And you see blame and accusation. And so from there, Cain goes off and he builds a city. But this city is different than what God intended because God intended the Imago Dei to go into the world. But this city is different. This city is the Imago Cain. It's built in Cain's image. And from there, it just simply grows. And they build a tower 
that reaches to the heavens so that they can make a name for themselves, so that they can be known, so that they can be, and you see blame and accusation and deception and rivalry continue to grow. And in the midst of this new creation, there's not shalom, there's chaos. Things are not the way they are supposed to be. But it continues to grow. And then you come to the point where you start to see these massive empires that are power and control and taking over. And you see it played out through Egypt and Assyria. You see it played out in Babylon. You see it in Rome. And these empires are thirsting for power and control. And they're all about themselves. They're all about making sure their name is great. And so it's into this mess that we have that God calls a man named Abram. And it's really interesting because he calls Abram and he says, I want you to leave everything behind you. I want you to leave your people and your father's people and your land. I want you to leave the way things are behind you. And we're going to go to a new place and we're going to start a new tribe. And this new tribe is going to be different than these tribes because these tribes have been all about themselves. They've been all about making their name great. They've been all about making sure they were on top, and they've grown, and they've grown, and they've grown, and they're out of control. Someone is always fighting for more power, and it's into this that he calls Abram, and he says, we're going to start a new tribe, and this tribe is going to be different than all of these tribes. Because this tribe is not going to exist for themselves. They're going to exist so that they would be a blessing to the world. And through them, this Messiah who's going to bring hope is going to come into the world. And everything will be different because this man is going to start something different in the midst of the mess. God doesn't just say, I'm going to wipe it over and start over again. He sends someone who bears his image to help creation flourish and expand and dwell with God into the midst of it. And he plants them in the center of it and says, I want you to start something new. We're going to be different than all of the other nations before us. And so Abram goes. And things go well at first. And Abraham has a son. And his son's name is Isaac. And Isaac has two sons. One is named Jacob, and one is named Esau. And Jacob and Esau, you see the spirit coming back into play as this spirit starts to blame and accuse the other brother, your father's favorite. And it leads to this rivalry between these siblings. And this rivalry comes in the form of deception. He says, here, I am your son, Esau. Jacob gets the blessing that his brother deserved. And you see blame and accusation and deception and rivalry at the core of this relationship. But it's just a dysfunctional family, right? We, we all have those. There's dysfunctional families everywhere. But Jacob has a son. 
And he has 12 sons, in fact. But one son, it says that he likes a little bit better than the others. And so he gives him this gorgeous coat. And they start to blame and accuse their brother. And there's rivalry that develops. And they're angry with him and they want to kill him. But instead of killing him, they deceive their father and they sell him into slavery. And he becomes a prisoner. And we think, well, it's just a a dysfunctional family, right? But what we see is there's a pattern. There's a pattern to the problem. And we keep reliving it. But this story takes an incredible twist A turn where the brother who was sold into slavery actually gets a moment where he is now a prince. And he's confronted by his brothers. And he is in the place of power. And he has the chance to seek revenge. And he has the chance to get even. He has the chance to blame and accuse and deceive and finish this rivalry off for good. But in this incredible twist, he does not return evil for evil. He does not get even. He chooses a new path, a new road to forgive. And forgiveness redefines that family. And it creates a new future where it seems like everything was dead and there was no possibility of moving forward. Forgiveness paved the way to a new life. And we think, well, it's just this dysfunctional family. But what began as brother versus brother and city versus city and empire versus empire has continued to grow out of control. And then there becomes this pattern that we get to see throughout the entire Old Testament As people are slaves, they find themselves in these moments of exodus and exile and return. And we find out that it's a pattern, that it wasn't just Cain and Abel. And it wasn't just Joseph and his brothers, but it's everyone everywhere that we find out that this pattern was systemic. And it's woven into the fabric of this new recreated world. As, As man and woman took God's good creation and did something else with it other than what it was designed to be used for, it brings death and destruction and decay. And yet, with all of the pain and all of the problems it brings, Man's original purpose, vocation, calling never changes. The pain may change your perspective, but it does not change your purpose. Your purpose never changes. You see, pain brings with it this curse. And it becomes that now our goal is to avoid pain. What what can I do to be about myself, to protect me, to make sure I don't experience pain? And in doing so, we lose sight of that purpose, that vocation, that calling to bear God's image, 
and help this creation flourish and help the borders of the kingdom expand and so that the glory of God would fill the whole earth. But in the midst of this, God gives a law. And we think the law was there just to say, here, do this and don't do this. But ultimately, law had a bigger purpose than just some do's and don'ts. It was all about shalom. It was all about restoring peace with God, peace with one another, peace with self, and peace with creation. Because that's what every good law does. It makes things right once again. And as things continue to go south and go in an opposite direction, God is constantly calling his image bearers back to this temple this place where God dwelled, where everything was as it was supposed to be, and he gives them the purpose of creating this new world in the midst of this one that's decaying and falling apart and broken. And he says, do not lose sight of that purpose. And from there, he calls Moses and he gives him this law. And he says, here's how my people are going to function because my people will be different than these people. They're going to live in this world differently. And so he gives them the law. But the people forget so easily and they build this calf made out of gold and they start worshiping it. And God comes back to Moses and both God and Moses are angry. And God says to Moses, I'm going to send you into the land that I've been promising. I've been promising that I'm going to take you back to this place. I've been promising you this this land, this perfect place, and I'm still going to send you there, but I'm not going with you. And Moses is angry, and he starts to beg and plead with God, God, if you are not going to go with us, do not send us. If you're not going to go with us, don't just send us on this, because we do not stand a chance And so he takes Moses up on a mountaintop. And Moses begs and pleads with God and says, you have to go. And God says, fine, I will go with you. And Moses, in this most bold, profound question, says, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God says, I will show you my goodness. Because it's my goodness, my blessing, that will separate you from all of the other people of this world. And Moses, trying to get a picture of what it looks like for God's presence, God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you this tabernacle. And it's going to represent several things. It's going to represent, just like the temple did, um, that God dwells here. It's going to represent this connection with heaven and earth, and it's the place that God's glory is going to be seen. And in Exodus 40, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And the hope is in God's presence. Healing would come into this world. 
that through God's presence in this world, through the ones who bear his image, would come healing and come restoration and reconciliation and renewal. That would be our hope. And throughout the Old Testament, these prophets continue to testify that God is doing something new in the midst of the mess, in the midst of the brokenness, even though there's this tendency to want to continue to go back to the way things used to be. Even though we're called out, even though we're different, there's this tendency that we navigate towards death and destruction. And somehow it becomes so seductive. In Numbers, they're angry at Moses. And God is pleading with them on, with God on their behalf. And he says, surely my glory will one day fill this earth. In Isaiah, he talks about a day where they're swords are beat into plowshares, and that there is peace among all of the nations, and a day when the lion and the lamb will lie down together, and there will ultimately be shalom. There will be peace. In Ezekiel 47, he speaks of this temple, and this temple has a river that's flowing out of it, and it has the power to bring healing to the nations. And it says towards the end in verse 11 or 12 that there are trees on the banks of these rivers. And the leaves are for the healing of the nations. Of making everything right once again. Because there is the sense that things are not the way they are supposed to be. And there is a longing that things would be right once again that we would dwell with God and that he would be with us and he would be our God and we would be his people and we would bear his image in this world and we would change. There is that hope and there is that longing that this is not how it's supposed to be. And this temple comes in the midst of a world that's not right, a world that's broken and continues to follow this pattern day in and day out, doing the same thing over, thinking everything will change. And then John speaks some really powerful words in his chapter, chapter 1 that we read this morning from Corey. It says, The Word became flesh and made its tabernacle its dwelling place among us. The place where God dwells, the connection of heaven and earth and the glory of God is seen in this beautiful, beautiful picture. For Jesus chooses to not do what everyone else has always done. But in the spirit of Joseph, forgives. And he ends 
this cycle by not responding to evil with evil, by not trying to get even. He steps into this picture and he acts as an advocate and a helper and a counselor. And before he leaves this earth, he keeps telling his apostles that he's going to send this spirit and the Spirit will dwell within him. And through the cross, he takes on the worst that sin could possibly do. But because, because he is not following this pattern, because he forgives, death has no hold on him. And he is raised. And the Spirit that raised him, that advocate, that helper, that counselor, he says, comes to live in you. To recreate you in his image. To give you a new heart. That you, through your presence, would bear his image in this world. And that the world would be different because you are here. And as his presence dwells in you, it would do what the tabernacle hoped to do. It would bring his healing presence into the world through his people. And where there was chaos and seeking to make a name for themselves, there's this new group of people that would be formed. And they would bear his image and they would follow his way, the way of forgiveness. And they would start creating this new entity that he calls the church. Not not a building, but this collection of people, this group of people that have been transformed and changed through Jesus' forgiveness and have said, we are going to be people of forgiveness. And the way things have always been is not the way they will always be because we're going to break the pattern. And everything in the world says there is no hope. There's no possibility of moving forward. There's no way we get out of this mess unless it just ends. And Jesus says, no, there is a way. It comes through grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. And it's going to take courage because in the midst of this, this creation is dying and the curse brought pain. God says, no, I'm recreating this world. I'm making everything new. In fact, there's a new Jerusalem. And it's going to come in glory, and it's going to fill the earth. He says this in Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and he will be their God. 
He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. See, the hope of this story is that the way things are now is not the way they will always be. But just as in the beginning, the only way His presence and glory fills the earth is through His people filled with His presence and glory. The question this series asks is so important. What are you for? We are a people who are for the glory of God filling the earth. A people who are recreated in the image of Jesus. A forgiven group of sinners who is forgiving those around us. Who are going to find those people who are addicted and abused and lost and hurting and saying, like we said last week, we're going to grab the rope and we're going to pull with all we have for you. What would it look like to be a church who just simply walked up to people who were hurting and who were lost? And to simply put our arms around them and say, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know the pain you're experiencing. I don't know, know the hurt. What I do know is I'm for you. I'm for you. And the reason I'm for you is because God is for you. And God wants the very best for you. And because God is for you, I am for you. And because I am for you, we are for you. We are for people who are hurting. So as we finish this series, can we all pull on the same rope? Can we know what it is that we're for? We're for the glory of God coming, the shalom, the peace of God, filling this earth. Because when it fills this earth, when it fills this city, we find shalom. We find peace. We find prosperity. We find welfare. We find a world that is becoming the way it was supposed to be from the beginning. But that presence only comes through you and I. We love people with no agenda. We love people fully, and we don't have an agenda because the agenda is completely averse to the gospel of Jesus Christ. To have an agenda is to use people, and we are not there to use people. We are simply for them. And then third, believe that God planted you here for a purpose. That there is a reason he puts you here in the midst of this creation. To embody and reflect him, to bring his presence and his glory into this world. Father, today we pray, we hope that you will put people around us who are holding on to a lifeline. And Father, that we won't spend our life pulling in different directions from one another. That we will grab hold of the rope and pull with everything we have because we are for this city. And we are for people. 
and we are for our neighbor, and we are for the broken, and for the abused, and we're for the hurting, and we're for the hungry, and we're for those who don't have parents, and we're for those who are lost and searching, and we're those for those who are struggling with their finances, and we're for those who do not know Jesus Christ. And Father, it's our belief, it's our understanding that the only way they will ever know is if we, your image bearers, would bring your presence and glory into this world. Because through us, through your church, not a building, but this group of people, the world would know what God is like. Father, allow us to be that light in the darkness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.